Good morning. We would like to welcome you to Mount Berg Baptist Church and to our noonday Lenten worship series throughout this holy week. This is one of my favorite times of the year. I enjoy these services very much and I always gain much from them and I hope that you are prepared to do so as well. I invite you to take your hymnal please and to turn to page 471 for our opening hymn, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. And then I'd like you to ask you to stand, please, and lay that with inside your hymnal so that we can do our responsive call to worship together. Please stand and read out with strength and encourage those worshiping with you. Come, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and Christ will give you rest. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount. The Lord is always before us. Because God is at our right hand, we shall not be moved. God shows us the path of life. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. In God's right hand, pleasures forevermore. Therefore, our hearts are glad, our souls rejoice, our bodies rest secure. me in his arms in the arms 
you to pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for the gift of this day. We thank you for the certainty that you are present with us and the power of your Holy Spirit and that you will provide for us and meet our every need. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that we do not have to get ourselves in a position where we could be worthy to approach you, but you give us all the righteousness, the worthiness that we need through Christ. We pray this week that you would remind us of the hope that is ours because of the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm so glad each of you could be here for the first of our Holy Week services, or second, first of the weekday Holy Week services. Um, these are always a real exciting time for me because I feel like people that I'm friends with get to come in and meet my family and I'm proud of you all and so it always excites me um, this week to invite someone in to experience the community that God's um, building here at Mount Merritt Baptist Church and so this is exciting. Um, our speaker for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday is Cameron Cole and if I could uh, bring you all up here I could show you Cameron's family's um, membership card from several years ago, a much younger Cameron Cole um, but Cameron and his family um, were members here at Mount Brook Baptist Church. Cameron and I still see each other at least once a year in the lower parking lot during the Living Nativity because uh, that is a part of his Christmas celebration as well. And so Cameron is uh, well acquainted with so many of you um, and a, a friend and I would say a, a fan of Mount Brook Baptist Church. And so it's really our pleasure to have him here. He is on staff at Cathedral Church of the Advent downtown. And, and Cameron is my family ministries guru. Um, any issue that I run into, my first thought is to call Cameron because um, he has been involved in family ministries in some form or fashion for how many years, Cameron? Uh, uh, 18. He started when he was 10. Um, <laughs> he's been doing it a long time. And so also is very involved in a ministry called Rooted um, that he helped start that is a resource ministry for families as we're trying to navigate um, this crazy world and how we raise our kids to know and love and live for Christ. Cameron, um, when I texted him and I said, I need a bio from you, he said, well, just tell him that I'm plain as grits and I have a wonderful family. <laughs> so um, he's married to Lauren. They have four children, Cam, who is with the Lord, Mary Matthews, who's 10 in fourth grade, um, and we were just talking earlier how we hope that the two of them will be best friends for life. Fourth grade at Brookwood Forest, um, Hutch, who is eight, and Knox, who is five. Um, Cameron um, enjoys distant swimming, which we know he's a glutton for punishment. He enjoys that. Alabama football, international soccer, barbecue, meeting threes, cutting his grass, and fine dining with his wife. Um, so glad that he is here. Um, after Miss Joy Wood comes um, and leads us in a message and song, um, we prepare our hearts to hear Cam Cameron gladly. Twas a life filled with aimless. 
endless desperation. Without hope, walk the shell of a man. Then a hand with a nail print stretched downward. Just one touch, then a new life began. And the The difference in a life bound for heartache and defeat. I will praise him forever and ever for the cross made the difference for me. Barren walls echoed in anger little feet ran in terror to hide now those walls ring with love warmth and laughter since the giver of life moved inside and the cross made the difference in a life bound for heartache and defeat. I will praise him forever and ever for the cross made the difference for me. There's a room filled with sad, ashen faces. Without hope, death has wrapped them in gloom. But at the side of a saint, there's rejoicing. For life can't be sealed in a tomb. cross made the difference in a life bound for heartache and defeat. I will praise him forever and ever for the cross made the difference for me. so grateful to be here. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to open it to Luke 23, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, and I, I have to say, I am just so, so grateful to be here. Um, grateful for the invitation from Wayne, but you know, I, I literally walked down this aisle over 30 years ago and uh, professed faith in Christ and was baptized by Dr. Moby's in the, in the big sanctuary. And um, to think about you know, you're 43 years old and you look back over more than 30 years of walking with Jesus to think of 
the ways that the Lord has shaped and taught and sustained and protected and healed, just to see how, how long the Lord has carried me. I just have so much gratitude to the Lord um, to be in this place. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I can even remember, uh, I don't know if you guys have a song in your head when you're, uh, you're trying to find a book of the Bible and you forget the order and you have that song. I can remember Dr. I mean, uh, Miss Crow and, and Eddie and Eddie Terrell, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Terrell, the song that they taught me in third grade here at Mount Berg Baptist is always the song that I sing to find my, where's Micah and you know, sing the song, you know, <laughs> anyhow, praise, praise the Lord. Uh, all right. So for the next three days, we're going to talk about the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the life. Sermon text is Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Chief priest and uh, with the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I find no guilt in this man of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him, and I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. It's the word of the Lord. Mighty God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would see and hear, know and trust, love, worship, and glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, I, like Mark and Wayne, 
went to seminary, and uh, we both did mutually mutually grueling seminary programs. Uh, my my uh, I went to RTS, and it was 110 credit hours. It was longer than my undergraduate degree. And I, I took the 10-year plan, literally. Literally the 10-year plan. Had four children while doing that. Had a full-time job. And uh, the present you get at the end of RTS, when you finished all of your coursework, is you get to take the Westminster Shorter Catechism Test. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you grew up from Presbyterian background, is 150 questions, and, and then there are answers, and it's a way that they, that they teach people doctrine. And so you had to take three tests, each for 50 of the questions. The questions were things like, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, right? That's one of the questions. And so with the test, you had to pass all three in order to graduate, and you had to get every single word right. And if you got one word wrong on any of the questions, the question was wrong. And if you missed, they were gracious. If you missed more than one, if you, you could miss one, but if you missed more than one question, you failed the exam and had to take it over. So I missed one question on one of the exams because I used the word glory instead of heaven. So I would just say that the Westminster Shorter Catechism exams were one of the worst experiences of my entire life. <laughs> I was, uh, I couldn't sleep because I was sitting here thinking I have done all of this coursework, watched my wife go through all of this misery uh, changing diapers while I'm, you know, memorizing Greek and Hebrew paradigms. And I have to basically score perfectly on this test in order to pass or I'm not going to pass, I'm not going to get the degree. And uh, it was a back and forth between anxiety and just sheer anger. <laughs> and it was this tyranny of perfection that made it so bad. This standard of perfection, you get one thing wrong and you are failed. You do not pass. That is what made it so utterly miserable. And so that's what I want to talk about today, is the tyranny of perfection that so many of us live under, that's so pervasive in our culture today. And I want to talk about how the perfect life of Jesus sets us free from the tyranny of perfection. And so first, I want to walk through the text here. And so leading up to Luke 23, in Luke 22, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's denied by Peter. He's arrested. He's brought before the, the Jewish council where they essentially try him for blasphemy. They ask him, are you saying that you are the son of God? And Jesus is, is frank. He says, I am the son of man, and I will sit at the right hand of the Father. And so they have heard enough. This seals his fate. The Jews want him dead. However, they did not have the power to, to sentence Jesus to the death penalty. They were uh, under the power of Rome. And so they send him over to Pilate to try to get uh, Jesus uh, sentenced to death. And so they, they, they cultivate or kind of uh, spin the charges against Jesus they modify them to make it so that it will appeal to Pilate. They're saying that Jesus is putting himself on the same level as Caesar, and he's threatening the authority of, of the Roman government. 
And then in verse 3, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Uh, And Pilate then says to the chief priests in the crowd, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. So verdict number one from Pilate, innocent. And so Pilate wants to get this off his desk. He doesn't want to deal with this. And so he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and that is in Uh, that is in Herod's jurisdiction. So he says, why don't we send him over to Herod? And on one hand, he's just kind of getting rid of the problem. On the other hand, this would win him some capital with Herod because this would be a deferential move. Herod would feel respected by Pilate. And so it serves two purposes. So Jesus is sent over to Herod. And Herod asks Jesus, uh, you know, questions. He examines him, but, but Herod doesn't genuinely have any sincere interest in the criminality of what Jesus has done. This is a side show. This is entertainment for Herod. He hopes to see Jesus do some magic tricks because he's heard that he has miraculous powers. And he makes fun of Jesus, and he dresses him up like a king. But at the end of it, he says that he sees no fault in Jesus. So he sends him on back to Herod. I mean, sends him on back to Pilate. So the ball now is back in Pilate's court. Verse 13 Pilate says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. This is verdict number two from Pilate. He's innocent. The punishment would be a light flogging just to say, hey, keep your, keep your step in line. But then the, the people continue. They persist. They all cried together, away with this man, release Barabbas, a man who was, who was genuinely bad news. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. This is verdict number three, innocent. And so stop here and leave the last three for the end, but why is this declaration of Christ being free of guilt so ultimately and absolutely critical? When a sacrifice was brought before the Lord for atonement, for forgiveness of sins, It had to be a perfect, unblemished sacrifice in order for that sacrifice to be effective for atonement. And here is Jesus on his way to the cross. In Leviticus 22, Moses lays out the qualifications of sacrifices. says, when any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, For any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. Of the bulls or the sheep or the goats, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings for the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. And so the priest would examine the offering 
Some commentators say that they would examine it three times to make sure that the offering did not have a blemish. Other commentators say that there's this emphasis on, on three examinations of Jesus to show that it was complete and it was thorough and that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. Uh, and so here, that is what Pilate does as he declares Jesus innocent, 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 and free of guilt. Jesus is a perfect sacrifice without blemish. Now, how is it that Jesus is a perfect sacrifice? Well, he's a perfect sacrifice, but because by virtue of his divinity, he has the ability to live a perfect life. Now, I want you to think about this. We focus so much of our attention on the atonement of Jesus on the cross, and that's a, that's a good place to focus. Simultaneous, every single moment of Jesus' life, every single time that he was tempted, and he was tempted, he was fully human. Every single time, he said no to that temptation because he knew that he had to be a perfect sacrifice for our atonement. Now, when we think about Christ's atonement, we focus most of our energy on the cross. We don't think that Jesus had to live also the perfect life that Adam could not live. And we don't think that because of Adam and because we, by nature, are sinners, that Jesus had to live for us the perfect life that we are not capable of living. The standard for being in relationship with God and for spending eternity in heaven with the Lord is perfection. Very often, people have a category error with salvation where they think about salvation in terms of good and bad. They think, you know, I have a, I have a friend. They are such a good person. They don't believe in Jesus, but they are such a good person. I just don't see how it is that God could send such a good person to hell because they do not believe in Jesus. And the fact of the matter is that is a false category. It's not about good and bad. It's about being absolutely perfect versus being imperfect. Now, everyone would agree, atheist, agnostic, whatever your worldview, that nobody is perfect. And the standard for being in relationship with the Lord is to be absolutely perfect. So how is it that anyone could inherit eternal life? How is it that anyone could live in fellowship with God if that's the standard? We go to verse 23. It says, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas was a criminal. He had done wrong. He was being set free. Jesus no guilt, being sent to the cross. Through our sin, we are deemed imperfect and, and worthy of judgment. However, when you put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are deemed righteous, perfectly righteous before God. In the cross, Jesus receives judgment earned by God's people for sin. And in the gospel, in faith, we receive the perfect righteousness earned by Christ for perfect obedience. And that is what we call justification. Justification has two parts. When we put our faith in Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, 
But the perfect righteousness that Jesus earns in a perfect life is counted to us. It is put on our account such that we still sin every day, all the time. And yet, in terms of our status before a holy God, our sins are forgiven through faith. And the perfect life, the perfect righteousness that Jesus earned by being perfectly obedient every moment of his life, it is credited to us credited to us as a gift such that we are perfectly acceptable before the throne of God permanently. Now, many of us live under the tyranny of perfection. And what I mean by that is we live our lives trying to be perfect in different ways. Boy, oh boy, when the guests are coming over to the house, house has got to be perfect, right? Got to clean up and straighten up, and it's eight hours of cleaning up the house. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> Appearance in our society. How many people on, on social media, on Facebook, are putting up pictures to try to procure that they have the image of the perfect family? There are even filters where people whiten their teeth and make their skin more tan, and this is for real. I am not kidding. <laughs> On Instagram, they have all these filters where people try to look perfect. We all want to have the perfect family, right? And boy, it really, really hurts when you're at the grocery store and your child starts pulling things off the shelf and starts throwing a bloody tantrum in the middle of the Publix. And for a lot of people, it's performance and work, arising to this perfect standard. And I would just say that when we live under the tyranny of perfection, when we are trying to measure up to a level of perfection, that is when, as Christians, we are at our worst. When we are trying to measure up to perfection, that is when we are more self-focused, more harsh, more snappy, more ungracious than at any time in our lives. We experience so much burden and so much exhaustion from the tyranny of perfection. I have a friend who actually was uh, Preached, preached in Birmingham two weeks ago. His name is Peter Ong, and Peter is a pastor up in, uh, up in Queens, and uh, he's an immigrant from China. His, his family, they were refugees of the Cultural Revolution, and he, uh, his family was wealthy in China, but when they came to the United States, they had lost everything uh, from the communists, and they were very poor. And so Peter talked about the pressure of being an immigrant child uh, the pressure that he felt to succeed and to achieve and to perform. He tells this story about being a, a middle school child and coming home with a 98, 98 out of 100 on an exam. And his dad says, what went wrong? What went wrong? And he said, if you hadn't been playing with your friends, you would not have failed in this kind of way. You are grounded from playing with your friends until you can achieve a 100. You can imagine the damage that does. Uh, some of you may have seen the movie Friday Night Lights, Coach Gaines, and he talks throughout the season about being perfect. First, first practice right at the beginning of the movie, we will win state. We will win state. Can you be perfect? But over the course of that movie, Coach Gaines gets beaten down by the burden of perfection. And in the, the last climactic scene in the locker room before they go out to play the second half of the state championship game, he redefines perfection in terms of love and service. 
And so the tyranny of perfection, it will beat us down. It will break us. But the thing that restores us, the thing that brings us back to life, back to freedom and comfort, it is the perfect life of Jesus that is credited to us by grace through faith. So the question for you is, do you live under the burden of perfection? Good news is that Christ has already lived your whole life perfectly on your behalf. On this very day, do we need to seek to obey God's commands as well as possible? Absolutely. Do we need to walk in to the good works that he's prepared for us to do? Absolutely. And you can do this walking in the liberty of knowing that Jesus has lived this very day perfectly on your behalf. You are a free person. Let's pray. Mighty God, pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Each day during these services, we will close with one stanza of the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. So please turn to page 185 and then stand with me as we sing stanza one together. Thank you so much. Um, something we can all relate to, I believe. Um, I'm definitely at my worst when I see my errors and sins and failures and try to justify them um, rather than embracing the good news of the gospel and receiving the righteousness of Christ. So thank you so much for that reminder. Um, if you're a guest with us, I just want to extend a special word of welcome to you. So glad that you came and hope that you'll come back Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Um, and Friday, and then Thursday night at 6.30 in our sanctuary, we have a Maundy Thursday service. So I hope you'll come and be a part of that as well. Following the benediction, we'll go downstairs to Heritage Hall for lunch. We would love for you um, to join us. If you're a guest, you didn't come prepared for um, the feed for lunch, Kelly's picking it up for you. <laughs> so just make sure you go straight down, and uh, the way you find it is just follow the crowd. If you don't know where you're going, follow the crowd and the smell of the food. And make sure you tell all the servers down there how much you appreciate them um, making this uh, possible for us today. I invite you, if you would, to pray with me. God, we're so grateful 
for the good news that we've heard again during this service. Lord, we pray that as we see our own sins and failures come up before us, that we would look to the perfect life of Jesus and believe in faith that his perfect righteousness is ours and that we would feel the joy of the gospel and that we would extend that to others. We thank you for this food that we will eat. We pray that we would eat it with grateful hearts and that you would be encouraged by our fellowship around the tables. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.